Amen. If you would please be turned in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. Last week we started this chapter, and in Isaiah 28, we're looking at the prophecies of the woes. And chapter 28 and 29 are talking is talking about foolish leaders and false counsel. And the first thing that we noted about that was Isaiah pointed back to the brothers up north and said the rulers, um, especially the priests and prophets, were plagued with drunkenness. And we kind of parked on that for a little bit because a lot of times um, we don't really think about the impact of that. And so we we looked at that, and so just kind of to summarize, we looked at the crown of pride, which also involved that drunkenness, and then we looked at the crown of glory, and we didn't spend much time on that, and today we'll just kind of review it briefly. The Lord is going to send a mighty and strong one, and it's the Lord of hosts that does this. And he's going to have a spirit of judgment, and he's going to have strength. And so this is talking about Messiah. And so what we find here is Isaiah routinely is focused on their present condition, and he's basically trying to encourage them that in spite of the circumstances, it's important that they trust God. I read something that I paraphrased. And it says each one of us is making a statement about how much we trust God by the way we live. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about the way you live. What is the statement that it makes about our trust in God? Um, the issue in Isaiah's time, it helps to remember the context here. The issue in Isaiah's time is the nation is facing what they believe is a soon attack from Assyria. Now the north is going to definitely have that happen, but the south is later going to be taken by Babylon. And instead of turning to God, they're turning to all of their neighbors. But in particular, in these passages... What's in view, what Isaiah is trying to teach them about, is Egypt. They're thinking that if we align with Egypt, then all of this problems and everything, we'll be able to, to face it, and in self-sufficiency, we'll be all right. And he keeps telling them, you need to trust in God. You need to trust in God. And the same message that he gives the leaders of Judah and gives the southern kingdom, really, we can take it to heart today. He wasn't speaking to us, but he may as well have been, because we see trouble in our world today. And the question is, is does the world around us see us wringing our hands mentally over what's going on, or do they see us as just having a quiet, peaceful trust in God? And so today we're going to pick up with Isaiah. We're going to start in verse 9. Last week 
the focus really was on the northern kingdom and its rulers. And the admonition that Isaiah is giving is don't follow the pattern of the northern kingdom. They're following after their own way and they're following after drunkenness. Today, and it's hard to tell exactly where the shift is, commentaries don't even agree with it, but somewhere in this passage, the shift goes from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. But it has an interesting start. Verse 9 of Isaiah 28. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might be broken, or excuse me, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, the first verse in particular, I was like, what is he talking about? What do you think he is talking about there? And don't feel bad if you don't know, because I didn't know. I read it several times and still was confused and went back a few more times and then went to the commentary. Kurt, did you have something you wanted to... We're talking about um, verse 10. I think he's, he's discussing how we learn. We don't learn everything all at once. We learn a little at a time. Okay. Principle upon principle, line upon line. And, and he's saying that, well, if you had done this, this would be rest. You would have knowledge. But they didn't do it. Okay, now Kurt got to the part that I found a little easier. It's the verse just before that that I struggled with. (laughs) And Kurt's right. I mean, what he's talking about is true. We learn, you know, a little at a time. Here a little, there a little. Okay, Nancy had her hand up. Yeah. I first thought when I read that that he was talking about the Hebrew. The nation of Israel, because he had taught them all that little by little and bit by bit, and they still didn't know it. Yeah, and Nancy's right. He is talking specifically to the Jewish people, particularly Judah, the southern kingdom, um, and they didn't listen. Okay, and they didn't learn from it. John, yeah, you. In the first section here, it's. They're listening to the counsel and teaching of ungodly, or those who have left the faith. And then he contrasts that with the same learning uh, process of learning from those in the faith. Okay. So, as you can tell, that verse isn't easy for us. It wasn't easy for me. 
The first thing I would bring your attention to that made it hard was, he says, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Who is the he there? And don't feel bad. You, you might not get it right. You know, I, I don't think I did when I first thought about it. Who is the he talking about? Because it doesn't give us a direct indication. Pardon me? The readers. Well, in this case, he's saying, who shall he teach knowledge? Who, who, the people that are supposed to get it are the Israelites, but who is the he? Who's going to do the teaching? Who's the me? I'm sorry, Norm, I'm not hearing you too well. Who's Can you help me, Bob? What do Those you... who lead. Those who lead? Okay. One would think that because of the fact that the preceding section was was there. Nancy? I'm going to try the prophet Isaiah. Okay, the prophet Isaiah, and Nancy is right. Okay, it took me multiple commentaries and them defining the context of what he was doing as to why this was said. This verse in particular, I just read and reread and scratched my head and had a lot of difficulty with. And the reason is, is I wasn't there. I didn't see what Isaiah was going through. What the commentaries pretty uniformly pointed out is that Isaiah wasn't revered and respected like I think most of us would put the prophets of the Bible, but rather he was scoffed at and mocked. And one of the things that they did to mock him and scoff at him was they would say, uh, you need to go teach children. That's too simple for us. You know, it's below our, our grade level. You hear about people saying, well, that's above my pay grade. Well, in this case, it's the opposite. Uh, what you have to say is too simple. Brother Dalton, you had your hand up. I'll pass on the pastor part. Brother Tisha, how many of you was, I don't know, you might be in a mode where you're just talking to God and said, Lord, whom shall we, you know, teach knowledge? Mm -hmm. Shall we teach these things? You know, so I believe he was in that frame of mind when he was making this statement, uh, you know, he was maybe just pouring out his heart to God. Yeah. Uh, because he, he hungered and he wanted everyone to live a righteous life. You want to be, you know, yeah. seek God, you know, as the as scriptures say, in all your ways. He definitely wants. He definitely wanted them to hear the message from God. But this part here, and that's why we have so much difficulty with it, is best understood when you realize they weren't receiving the message. The Israelites weren't. In fact, they were mocking him with the idea of go teach children. And so there's this simple message, and it's introduced here with sarcasm. He's being sarcastic. 
But unfortunately, we don't hear tone of voice. We don't have the history. We aren't there. And so the commentaries uniformly pointed out this verse and said, they were telling Isaiah, basically, go teach children. And so he's mocking them in return with a sarcastic response. Whom, and we would have normally said, well, why didn't he say, whom shall I teach knowledge? Whom shall I teach or make to understand doctrine? But he's mocking them. And he's saying, whom shall he teach? Who should the prophet teach? Who, and the answer is those that are mature enough to understand, which is children that have been weaned. And so he goes on to say, precept upon precept, and we lose a lot with translation. This precept upon precept, line upon line, multiple commentaries pointed out this is two Hebrew words, and it's variations on the Hebrew words. And so Isaiah is mocking them with the idea of, you say I should teach children, and here's this simple message. And to them, it was like saying blah, 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 you know, gibberish, childish speak. And so we read it and we say, and, and Kurt's right, we do learn a little at a time. And so here we look at this and we say, oh, this makes sense. A precept upon a precept. You build the foundation, then you stack more on it, line upon line. That is how we learn, here a little, there a little. And so the message is simple. There's a sarcastic introduction here which threw me a curveball because I struggled with it because I didn't know his context, what he was dealing with. And then he says, God's word is really easy to understand. It's precept upon precept. And so in verses 10 and 13, he highlights the fact it's easy. It's not that God's making this hard. And then he gives them their reaction. What's the first and primary response of the Jewish people in this passage. They go up to the prophet, they give him a big hug and say, thank you for teaching us about God, right? <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> Pardon me? They rejected him. They rejected him, exactly. And so the rejection is there they aren't going to listen. In fact, uh, if you look at verse 12, the ending of it says, yet they would not hear. So the next verse, after the precept upon precept, verse 11, kind of brings up the fact that they aren't going to hear. What's going to happen because they won't listen to God, they won't hear God? Okay, Nancy's perfectly correct. It's judgment. What is the judgment that, and how is it brought out here? Speaking with another time to another people. Exactly. 
Their primary response is the fact they're not going to listen. And so God is going to bring in foreign countries that will speak to them. In particular for the northern kingdom, Assyria comes in. And so here's this foreign language. And so they won't listen to the simple message, the precept upon precept. So God's going to bring in foreign languages. I found it interesting as I was reading that verse and thinking about it. I don't remember where I either read it or heard it, but the comment was made that God had always spoken to the Jewish people in Hebrew, in their native tongue. But when God would judge them, he would use a foreign tongue, a foreign language. Here, the direct immediate implication of this passage is the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to basically destroy the northern kingdom. Later, it's going to be true for the Babylonians. They're going to come in and on the southern kingdom, they come in with their foreign language and they conquer the southern kingdom. But there's also implications. Whether he was talking about this or not, I cannot be for certain. But one of the implications is when Jesus ascended and the apostles were meeting in Acts, we call it the day of Pentecost. What happened on that day? They spoke in other languages, tongues. And it was a judgment upon Israel for basically rejecting their Messiah. Now, I want us to be real clear about something. Who put Jesus on the cross? The Father. Yes, that's technically true. Who else? The Romans. Okay, someone said it, all of us. All of our sin, collectively, all mankind's sin, is what put Jesus on the cross. It's not the Jewish people only. It's not the Romans only. It's me and you and every other human that has sinned put Jesus on the cross. Now, he did it willingly. He went to the cross willingly. But it was our sin that caused him to give up his life and go on the cross. When Pilate was judging Jesus, he had to make a decision what to do with him. And the crowd swayed him. And the crowd made an interesting statement, said, His blood be upon us and our children. The Jewish people were the crowd but it could have just as easily been us. The Jewish people, Satan has hated more than any other people group. And you see it down through history, the Holocaust. There's many other slaughters and genocide of the Jewish people that isn't mentioned. But the thing that I wanted to bring out was the fact when God judged Israel
And really, they're still facing some of that judgment as he's purging them and getting them ready to accept their Messiah. They pronounced their own judgment, which was his blood was going to be upon them. But Pentecost, they heard other languages. And part of that judgment was God was doing time out for the Jews. He hasn't cast them off where he's not going to take them. Paul makes that clear in Romans. But what he has done is he said, time out for the Jews. Kind of set them as a nation on a shelf. And he works through the church today. That's a form of judgment. And so here in Isaiah, I'm sure he did not have that in mind. But the same principle of what was happening in their time, that present problem, we see it mirrored in what happened in Jerusalem when Jesus died. When the Jews rejected their Messiah, they accepted judgment. Brenda? I think that's why when Jesus died, they put three different languages above the cross. In Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So it wasn't just the Jews. The Jews there, all three languages, so to all, all of them. Hadn't thought about that aspect. I thought of Pentecost, but Brenda brings up a good point. God's judgment is in three languages above the cross. So here, Isaiah's bringing a simple message. They're rejecting it. And so what's going to happen is foreign languages, the immediate judgment that he's talking about is the Assyrians and potentially the Babylonians. What's the second possible response? There's two, two responses and two outcomes to the simple message. And it's true today for the gospel, but it was true in Isaiah's day for his message. What's the other response that they could have had? And what was the outcome of that? It's kind of buried in these passages. <laughs> Pardon me? Rest. If you look at it, we keep mentioning the fact that Isaiah is trying to encourage them, trust God. Trust God. If I were in Isaiah's shoes, I would probably said, how many times do I need to say this, folks? Trust God. And he keeps saying that. Um, Beth mentioned Isaiah 26, 3, verse that's near and dear to my heart. It says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah, over and over again, is pleading with them, trust God. Instead, if we go back into the history, we find they're trying to trust politics, their alliances with these other countries. And he's saying, it's simple, folks. Trust God and you'll have rest. And he mentions that in verse 12. He says, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing Which would you rather trust? God 
or our United States military? God, why? The United States military supposedly is the strongest, most technologically advanced military ever seen on earth. Supposed to be amazing compared to every other military. Why wouldn't you want to trust it instead of God? Bill? They can be compared to what God can do. Okay. Bill hit the nail right on the head. We have a God who's more powerful than anything in this world. He created this world. He can hold the sun in his hands. And so here's an all-powerful God. And then here's the best man has to offer, which pales in comparison. It's like, you know, trying to hold up the world with a you know, piece of straw, of hay, versus holding up the world with you know, the strongest thing we can think of, which is really God. And so that's the comparison Isaiah is trying to bring out to him. Do you trust God, who's far more powerful, or are you going to trust these other military these other countries and politics. It's a lesson for us today, too, if you think about it. We hear about all these wars and rumors of wars, which, by the way, the Bible talks about that a lot, too. And what's our response? Is it to wring our hands? Is it to think, oh, if we vote this way or do this thing or put this politician or this military strategy into play that will be all right? Or is it to say, I serve a sovereign God who's in control, and I don't understand all this, but I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to have rest and peace. They go hand in hand. Bob? Jesus said in John fifteen five, you can do nothing without me. Yep. So John 15, 5 talks about the vine and the branches. And he says, you can do nothing without me. And this is just Jesus speaking to us. And so the message Isaiah is bringing to them, I think, is very similar to the message he would say to us today. The gospel message is simple. It says, trust in a Savior. And you'll have forgiveness of your sins and you'll have rest. Isaiah is saying to them in that day, a simple message. Trust God. Don't be trying to do all this nonsense with these other countries. And implied in here is Egypt. He doesn't say it, but it's implied. And so the bottom line is they aren't going to hear and so they're going to be broken. And that's in verse 12 and 13. The last part of verse 12 says, Yet they would not hear. And if you skip the precept upon precept, which is kind of a repetition, but there's a reason for that, go to the end of the verse 13. It says that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. 
And so it's their own choice of listening, of hearing, that causes them to be destroyed. Now, I thought it was kind of interesting. I keep mentioning to you this chiastic pattern. It is not something that you and I readily identify. At least most of us don't. There might be a few that they think that way, but I don't. And so the emphasis of the message we just looked at has a certain chiastic pattern. And the center point of a chiastic pattern is the main point. To us, we, we think in terms of an introduction, point one, point two, point three, the conclusion, that's the bottom line, that's where we want to get. Well, in chiastic form, the conclusion, the bottom line, is in the middle. And how I identify these is usually I see something repetition. We see something obviously that's repetitious here. It's the phrase, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. So that's the starting point on this. There's then the speaking in a foreign language, and here's the center main point. God will give rest. And then hearing will not happen is the opposite point of the speaking in a foreign language, the fact they won't listen, and then precept upon precept. And so to the Jewish mind, to the Hebrew line of thought, which is used to chiastic form, they would have gotten this as, here's the main point. God's the one who gives rest. It gets back to Isaiah's point, and he beats it like a drum. Trust God, you will have rest. Instead, you think the message is too simple. Therefore, God's going to send you a foreign country, and you won't listen. In fact, years ago, I heard the illustration that our lives are kind of like a diamond in the rough. And God uses authorities in our life as a hammer and chisel to knock off the parts that don't look like Jesus, that don't make the diamond what it could potentially be. And if we're stubborn and don't listen, he gets a bigger hammer and chisel. And the, the illustration that I remember that went along with this is for a young person, your parents are the authority. And they're a gentle and small hammer and chisel. And if you rebel, then the next thing that happens is you get this crazy idea, well, I got to get out from under my parents, so I'll go join the Marines. <laughs> yeah. And that's a much bigger hammer and chisel. Well, that's kind of the illustration that God's giving here. It seems like a simple message. But the bottom line is you have to have faith and trust God. It's true for us today. True not just in what we see happening nationally, but true for our individual lives. The gospel is simple. We're a sinner. We need a Savior. God sent that Savior because he loves us. And it's a gift that we accept by faith. 
And people say, well, I got to do something. No, God's done it all. You only have to respond in faith. That's exactly the same predicament that the Israelites were finding that they had concerning their situation. Trust God. The next passage from 14 to 22, again, has a chiastic type structure. And I'm going to read it and see if you can pick out the middle point. Starting in verse 14. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also <clears throat> will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled. And your argument with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. From the time that goeth forth, it shall take, your, take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. For the bed is shorter than that a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrow than that he can wrap himself in it. For the Lord shall rise up in the mount of Perizim, and shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his, his act, his strange act. Now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord of hosts a consumption, even determination upon the earth. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Anyone know what the center point is of this, this passage? Before we start looking at it from the beginning. Nancy? Verse 16, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. That is the center point. That is the focal point that all the other verses are pointing to. So the first thing, though, We'll, we'll start at the beginning. The first thing that he points out here is the lies, the false counsel, the, fault, you know, the bad rulers. He said the rulers are scoffers. It's pretty simple in verse 14. 
Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people, which is in Jerusalem. So if, if the passage before wasn't directed at Judah, definitely at this point, there's a turning point where Isaiah is saying, okay, listen up. This isn't my word, this is God's word. And he calls them scoffers that rule over Jerusalem. And so that's the first point that he brings up. Now they, he mentions a very interesting thing. He mentions the idea that they've made a covenant with death. The passage, at least our translation, says, Ye have said... I can't think of anyone that would raise their hand and say, hey, I've made a covenant with death. However, I've seen some pretty strange things. There are people today that worship Satan, and they think that's a good thing. Um, whether this is their actual words or not, um, or whether this is a translation, doesn't really matter. They're thinking they're making a covenant with Egypt. He hasn't mentioned Egypt, but it's in the background, and we'll see it in future chapters. But instead, what they have really done is they've made a covenant with death. What do they think is going to happen with this covenant? I mean, we, we can just kind of ignore the fact that it's saying that it's with death, but what do they think is going to happen? Okay, they'll escape the judgment or escape the scourge of war because they have these alliances. They think it's going to protect their land. If you look at the last half of, of verse 15, when the overflowing scourge shall pass through it, or through, it shall not come unto us. Now, I like what Isaiah says next. I mean, this is their thought. They're thinking, we got this handled. We've made our alliances. When the war comes, not going to be a problem. It's not going to touch us. And Isaiah makes the comment for what do they have as refuge? Lies. Their lies, they think, is going to be a refuge. What else do they have in addition to these lies? Where are they going to hide? Falsehood. Falsehood. I don't know about you, but this picture came to my mind when I was thinking of it. You know, I'm going to crawl under a rock and hide, and so we're going to label this rock falsehood. And so we're going to lift falsehood up and, you know, slide right in there. So their, their lies and their falsehood is what their thinking is going to protect them. Now, they wouldn't have called it that. They would have said, no, 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 no. You know, it's not a lie. I, I've got Egypt. I can, I can be protected by Egypt. And then 
God says he's going to intervene. And this is the center point, the cornerstone. Yes, sir. We need to, for ourselves, and those, because we're older, our children, grandchildren, we need to be very specific, irregardless of the ramifications. You know what Grandpa said? About relationships. Relationships that God's trying to bring them into an intimate relationship with Him. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I have great confidence in Visa and MasterCard. <laughs> and, and now Amazon will bring it to my door. <laughs> and relationships, we need to take time and do, irregardless of our age, an inventory of our life about our relationships and where are we finding our, our confidence and our help and our security. And, and, and the consequences is, I'm not going into the promised land, okay, God said see in 40 years. You There's think- consequences to not to enter in the peace mm-hmm. that is there. And we don't think we're making relationships and we laugh at MasterCard and Visa, but we need to ask ourselves, all we are servants of Jesus Christ, and if we're not fulfilling that, who are we looking to? Either we are or we're not fulfilling God's will. Kind of gets back to the opening statement that we read that mentions the fact that each one of us is making a statement about how much we trust God by the way we live. And David brings up very interesting points when you really think about for them back there, back in Isaiah's time, it was Egypt. For a lot of Americans, it's the almighty dollar. Whether it comes in the form of Visa or MasterCard or Amazon or just how big a bank account or retirement account, it begs the question, who are we really trusting? And only we can know that in our heart. Is our trust in God and His provision or how much we may have stored up or how much credit limit we have on a card? And our kids and grandkids are watching and they're picking up the subtleties of what do we really trust. And so Isaiah has brought them a simple message. He's basically said, who are you going to trust? And then he highlights the fact, here's where your trust needs to be. On the cornerstone, the stone that God's going to raise up. We sing songs about it, rock of ages, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All of this is pointing to Jesus. And if you look at this chiastic pattern, I'm going to give you the last two parts and then we're going to come back up. The truth is going to prevail. 
We're going to come back to the cornerstone probably the next time we pick up on this. But I want you to notice the cornerstone is going to bring in judgment and righteousness in verse 17. Judgment will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And look what happens to the lies and to the hiding place. He says, The hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. So in the end, while there are those that propagate lies and believe their own lies and are self-deceived, the truth will prevail. And when it does, all the lies, all of the false hope is going to be swept away. I couldn't help when I was reading this passage to think of those that are facing the floodwaters after Hurricane Ian. There's no way to stop it. When the waters come up, they invade everything. They have some temporary dams in a few places, but... Homes are being destroyed by the floodwaters. When righteousness is brought in, when the Messiah comes, the floodwaters of righteousness are going to sweep away all the false hope and hiding places, all the lies. And Isaiah is pointing that out to them. They're believing lies, and the covenant is going to be annulled. It says disannulled. I don't know which word is the most accurate on that. But in verse 13, it says, Your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down. And so the emphasis is the fact that they can make all the agreements they want. But when God's judgment comes, there isn't anyone that can stop it. And so next time what we'll be looking at, we'll come circle back and we'll, we'll emphasize the cornerstone. There's a lot to be covered under that. And I'd like us to look at, in fact, if you could on your own look for passages in the New, New Testament about that. And then we'll kind of look at the judgment being described before we move on to the rest of the chapter. Well, thank you for your participation and for um, your attention. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we again give thanks for your word. We thank you that it speaks to our need, that it doesn't speak to our need in a way where we have to go through judgment because Christ has already done that. If we would just accept the simple message and trust and obey, what we'll find is we'll find peace and rest. We'll have peace with you. and We will have rest from the burden that our sin puts upon us. And Father, as we come into this worship service, may we exalt Christ highly. May we be grateful for the price he has paid, that we might be made right with you. Pray now you would guide and direct in the service that you would give pastor. 
put on his heart the words you would have him say and that your Holy Spirit would draw us closer to you and that our hearts would be moved to obey you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.